welcome to the Coalition for Physician Wellbeing's podcast, The Wellbeing Connector, where through our guests, we explore ideas for making healthcare a better place to work and serve. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Christine Porath. Christine is a tenured professor at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business, and she's the author of three books, Mastering Community, Mastering Civility, and The Cost of Bad Behavior. She is also a consultant working with leading organizations to help people and communities thrive. Her speaking and consulting clients include Google, the United Nations, the World Bank, Microsoft, Genetech, Marriott, 3M, Verizon, Ford, the World Health Organization, and the Cleveland Clinic. Well, thank you, Christine, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I'm excited to uh, have you on the show. There are a number of things I wanted to uh, ask you, but I think before we begin, uh, it'd be really good for uh, the audience who may not be familiar with you to hear just a general summary of what your research is on and a little bit about how you got into that field. Sure. So uh, my research, I really focus on how to create workplaces and communities where people can thrive. And I got into this because I worked, I thought I scored my dream job working in sports management. And it turned out that it was a pretty toxic environment. And I saw what the effects of that on people, uh, how it affected them, not only in the workplace, but outside of the workplace as well. And I just thought, wow, we can and should do better. And so it set me on a path to try to, I went back, got a PhD and tried to document and show what are the costs of, let's say, rudeness and negative interactions. Uh, and since then, moving more towards what are the benefits of respect and civility for leaders, for organizations, for communities, and how can we create communities where people really thrive, where they bring their full selves and feel a sense of belonging and Really, it's a win-win for people and places. And that's something that's clearly you're passionate about. But I've also noticed in your in your in your writings and your speaking that um, you make more you 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 want it to happen because it's the right thing. But it's more than just being nice. You also make a strong business case. Can you speak about that? Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, from my background, you know, I I am Catholic. I went to Holy Cross. I I do believe in that Jesuit mission of service for others, and you know, treating people right minimally and things like that. So, and I happen to teach at Georgetown University right now, and so you know, in a way, I could go in and say this is the right thing to do. You know, it, there is a moral argument. I believe in that moral argument. I just happen to believe that I also work in a business school and I talk to leaders and others that have a lot on their plate and have to weigh, you know, what am I going to prioritize and why am I going to do this? And even if I believe in it, how do I justify it to all of our stakeholders? And so I think from my economics background, that was my um, degree in undergraduate. And uh, I think that I brought that with me thinking like, how do you best make the case objectively as possible, what the costs are for this and why it matters that leaders and organizations, communities of all sorts are paying attention to this. Uh, So that's 
my main focus is trying to make sure that I motivate people and not only bring awareness, but bring the why it matters and how you can sell this to others if that's part of the the path. So can I ask you to speak to a little bit of the ROI return on investment for this, uh, particularly for civility? I know that's uh, one you covered quite in depth. Sure. Yeah. Well, just to give a, an example, one of the earliest studies that we did, we asked people to name just one time that they were treated rudely, disrespectfully, or uncivilly. And uh, over two thirds of people admitted cutting back work efforts, performance intentionally. 80% of people lost time worrying about it. 12 pe- 12% of people actually left their workplace as a result of this one incident. Uh, And so if you think of just that turnover cost in particular, you know, most places estimate that it's roughly five times uh, what a person's salary is to replace them. And so if you think about just that outcome alone, much less the lost productivity, the lost helpfulness, the lost uh, focus, uh, you know, the lost time worrying as you can imagine, the costs add up really quickly. So Cisco was the first organization that took just three of those numbers and estimated conservatively it was costing them over $12 million. But hospitals, uh, one hospital in particular, took the number and estimated conservatively it was costing them over $100 million a year. And so, you know, sadly, the costs add up quickly. And I noticed in the Marisan book, we talk about uh, community. A lot of the examples are just uh, a bunch of really successful teams and organizations that have done really well by developing community. Can you speak to that a bit? Sure. Yeah. Well, within the health arena, uh, I speak specifically about Cleveland Clinic that did an empathy training program that was uh, really uh, helpful for physicians and in ways that they didn't even predict, like it, it decreased physician burnout significantly. It increased retention significantly. And most of this was just getting, it was role-playing really, but Adrian Boise, who was the chief experience officer there, um, she really believed in this. And it was a reminder to physicians and others that it really came down to kind of showing that you cared, you know, like, why are you saying this? And just getting them to kind of voice that. Uh, and, you know, of course, paying attention to tone and different things like that. But that was something that for them was a game changer as far as outcomes and costs. Uh, I also talk about uh, UMass Memorial, which uh, has invested significantly in a standards of respect program. And theirs is incredibly comprehensive in terms of having six different standards of respect that they've highlighted, uh, having the almost nearly everyone go through training, uh, having reinforcing that along the way, even having a peer feedback type of system where physicians are choosing what they want to work on and, uh, you know, gathering information on them. And then those physicians are able to follow up with others to kind of track improvement. And Eric Dixon, the CEO there, told me that the Standards of Respect program has been really significant in terms of, you know, changing not only the culture, but really making it, uh, helping it achieve goals, including things like innovation, patient care, patient safety, things like that. So that's been a wonderful example to learn from as well. 
I notice a lot of your examples are from healthcare. Is that a coincidence, or do you think healthcare has a, has a particular need, or what, what, do you, what do you think? Yeah, a couple things. Uh, I was told in the Mastering Civility program, too much healthcare, you know, um, so that I it definitely seem to gravitate towards that. I think that it's probably twofold. One, I think the consequences are so high there, uh, as far as literally, you know, patient safety and death. And we see how civility affects that, meaning lots of research, even others showing it affects um, diagnostics and procedures and things like that, as well as just attention mistakes uh, and, you know, which can lead to death. So I think one is the potential costs around this, the consequences. I think the other now is just the the need uh, to help because I feel um, you know, that you guys are doing such important work and there's probably no greater industry that is being pressed in terms of burnout, you know, and having to care for people in an unprecedented time in ways that are really stretching folks. So if there was, you know, an industry that I had to choose as far as who needs this the most and, you know, who could benefit the most, even on the side of receiving it from caregivers and from patients. Uh, you know, Dr. Boise was actually, she reached out to me during the pandemic and said, I don't think you know how bad it is. Like you may, but I don't think you can fully appreciate how this is. And so we actually wrote a short piece in Harvard Business Review, you know, kind of trying to highlight how taxing this is for healthcare employees and what can be done uh, by healthcare systems uh, to try to make this better. Meaning it's not even just an internal problem. It's they're getting it from others outside of their systems. And you talked about the uh, issues in terms of uh, what, um, in terms of what some of the challenges are for healthcare but also you're also working in many other industries. What's one thing you think that healthcare can learn from other industries? Uh, so I think the idea of highlighting the need for community and, you know, really investing, uh, I don't think it's unique to other industries necessarily. I just think that people are suffering in even greater ways when I was writing this master in community book, meaning isolation, loneliness, burnout, things like that. So I think if anything, it's just the benefit of investing in these kind of uh, programs or uh, efforts to make people feel like they have a sense of belonging, they're psychologically safe, they feel valued, respected, heard, seen, I think, you know, nowadays, even since I wrote Mastering Civility, it's just, it's become sadly an even bigger issue and people are feeling worse uh, and worse mental health wise. And so I would just like to see the idea of community uh, highlighted even more. And what can you say about uh, other recent change, which is this technology? How have other industries handled that well in terms of uh, building community or at least not letting technology take away from the community? Yeah, I think it's really challenging. I mean, where I think it runs into real issues is just people are on 24-7 and so they feel stretched. And the number one reason for 
that people claim for being rude is feeling stressed or overwhelmed. And I think technology, we just, you know, we're tethered to it. And so it's really hard for people to kind of unwind or turn off or recover, which I think is even more important in healthcare, this recovery aspect. So I think that that's one issue. And then um, less so for healthcare, but the way that people have been isolated, uh, you know, many working from, let's say, home or something like that. That is an issue as far as building community and maintaining uh, community. So it, it's a challenge for sure. Yeah, even within healthcare, you have doctors and uh, uh, looking at their computers, maybe not interacting in the nursing station the same way. You know, there's still a certain amount of uh, people not needing to walk over to see the patient because if the remote monitoring is there. So I still think there's still that same thing, that maybe not in the same way as industries, but I still think it's still there. Yeah. I also wonder about, you know, I've been asked about this too, but like masks and things like that, like it's harder to kind of understand the nonverbals. And um, certainly, you know, we know from research that things like smiling and, you know, uh, connecting with people that way is, you know, is kind of uh, not possible in in many cases. And so I do think that that also uh, doesn't help, you know, in terms of feeling connected to people and maybe understanding that they care in ways that we're just not able to see. Very nice. Um, I also think the concept of the challenges of the time pressure, you talk about radical candor. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of how um, how people might learn how to interact a little better in terms of their feedback and discussions? Sure. The idea of radical candor, it's really Kim Scott's idea. She talks about you care personally and challenge directly. And so uh, she has laid out a beautiful two by two uh, little quadrant. But I like to think of it as if you plant the seeds of respect or showing that you care. And these are in very small moments. So this is like the empathy training where, you know, you may smile, acknowledge someone, ask how they are, uh, those kind of, you know, put your phone down, pay attention, listen attentively. All of those things communicate that you care. Uh, and then it gives you a lot more leadway to when you have to challenge someone or give constructive criticism, people are far less defensive. And there's this little bit of research that I feel like captures this well, and that is there was a study that showed that if you preface giving feedback with just 19 words, and it's along the lines of, I care about you and I think you can do better, then it people are 40% less defensive and they respond much better. And so I think that that's something that you know, that's the spirit in which we want to convey constructive criticism. So it's not that you don't want to give harsh feedback sometimes or challenge people to do better. It's the how that I think is so important. And I think if you're investing along the way in these moments where you are connecting with people, where they feel like you care about them personally, uh, the defensiveness, it removes that defensiveness uh, around the feedback. Very good. I was also interested in some things you said about self-care, and it kind of, kind of reminds me of what you just said right now, as a way for organizations to show they care about their people is to promote self-care. Can you speak about that? 
Sure. Yeah. I love the idea of, you know, caring about well-being. And in the book, you know, I tried to give examples from different industries. Um, healthcare, obviously, this is so important. But I give the examples of Marriott, who has had a take care program for decades now. But that actually started with their founder, um, Mr. Marriott, who actually hired, I think it was many, many decades ago, a physician for employees. Um, and it was a way to kind of make sure that they were being taken care of and looked after. And, you know, since then, Marriott has really prioritized this just general, I mean, their programs have obviously grown and are much more holistic in nature, but uh, they really emphasize this. And, they're global and now have over 700,000 employees. But one of the neat things that they've done is they have a take care, like an ambassadors program. And so it's a way of people stepping up voluntarily to really champion taking care. And so that may be organizing, you know, a workout program or yoga on the beach or um, cleaning up certain areas on the beach or so it, it ranges, but it's really about taking care of people, taking care of customers or in your case, patients and taking care of um, the world, you know, society. So I, that was one example. And Motley Fool was the other, you know, which is very different, much smaller and yet very innovative as far as you know, how do they look after themselves? And for them, a lot of it is the physical well-being, uh, investing in, you know, a, a person that was actually a trainer that would, you know, kind of provide programs and things like that. And their founder, Tom Gardner, just spoke about what a, an amazing return on investment that was as far as just increasing the health and the well-being of their employees. And so, at the root of it, I would say the physical is a big part of it, but it's more than that. You know, I think that that's grown in ways that cover, you know, mental well-being, emotional well-being, mental health, things of that nature. Uh, another topic you covered, which I don't know if we can solve completely in healthcare, but I think it's still worth discussing, is the importance of sleep. Could you say something about that as well? Yeah, that's a big one for your industry. I know uh, I was presenting years ago in a program at Harvard, and there was a wonderful doctor, Dr. Joe Soleil, that um, spoke to me. Yeah, she asked a question, but she just thought it, it's so bad in our industry. And she was able to articulate very well how this lack of sleep really hurt, uh, you know, interactions in healthcare systems and not only on the side of being maybe less patient, more curt, you know, uh, being perceived as more rude, but uh, she was highlighting how people responded to that. And we know from sleep research that it impacts our ability to self-regulate well. And so, you know, we don't tend to respond to, um, incidents where we're challenged that are stressful that are we're being mistreated in any way nearly as well and one of the neat bits of research that I came across while uh, writing this mastering community book was this idea of how sleep affects community in really problematic ways and Dr. Matthew Walker and his colleague found that sleep is a is, it's a lack of it becomes a social repellent. So if you get roughly an hour less of sleep, 
uh, people pick up on that and they are less likely to want to interact with you and they pass that forward. So literally people, you know, are kind of repelled by you in ways that you are not aware of. And so what he talks about is how problematic this is for any kind of community. And so I think that that's something that um, was really novel to me and was an interesting way to think about why, again, we might want to prioritize sleep if at all possible. Yeah. So any suggestions what we can do about that in healthcare? Because so much of it is uh, got to cover around the clock. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, Joe actually suggested, uh, you know, nap rooms. She was a big advocate for, for that and for, you know, trying to encourage, uh, breaks and things like that. So, um, you know, I am not an expert in your area and don't know really what's possible, but it, you know, I think from our own standpoint too, it's just being as disciplined as possible to make it a priority. You know, I think during the pandemic, I even I think about it, yeah, it, like going to bed earlier, you know, not staying up to watch that show. <laughs> that I want or, you know, whatever, because I just realize how I'm going to feel the next day and how it's going to affect me and, and others that I interact with. So I think it's super challenging for your industry and probably um, not very fair for me to That's <laughs> give, give pointed guidance. But but I think your message is well taken. Do what you have to do, but don't do any more. Don't, don't, don't deprive yourself of sleep that you don't beyond what's required. And I, that, that, yeah. and I think that's about that. Just having people be aware of it is, I think, just the start. Yeah. All right. Uh, there's something else I noticed in your writing that um, I mentioned. You had a number of healthcare examples. You also had a number of mm-hmm. sports examples. I tend to like the sports <laughs> examples. I, I thought I'd ask you about that as well. What are your thoughts about that? Great. I need you to be talking to my editors because this editor, you know, said I had too many sports examples. And I was like, you can never have too many sports examples. But I tend um, to agree, but that's my bias. <laughs> well, I'm working. The, the next book is, you know, primarily sports. So I found a way to, to get around this. But um, I really appreciate the feedback. Yeah, I my passion is sports. And that probably, I guess, shines through. My dad was uh, he is one of five boys. And the, I grew up, you know, around sports and the dinner conversation was around sports. The fight over the newspaper was for the sports page. And uh, I played two college sports, soccer and basketball. And so um, and high school boy soccer. So it was just it was, you know, for me playing outside, playing, you know, with boys, with uh, anyone else that was up for a game was just part of how I grew up. And I I really felt like I benefited a lot from that. It gave me so many wonderful life lessons. And I just, I think um, that's, you know, how I spend my free time, whether I'm active doing sports or whether I'm watching sports. So, um, and I agree with you. Like, I do think that there are so many leadership lessons, but I, I also want to be fair and, um, you know, make sure that I'm delivering for an audience to appreciate that. I'll tell you the reason I liked it. <laughs> There's no other industry more than sports where success or failure is as easily evaluated than sports. 
In every other industry, you talk, you talk by a great leader, by who appears to be a great leader, who is a great team, who appears to be a great team. Sports yeah. has more statistics and it's all televised. And then you, after you know who's successful, you can then analyze to see what made them that way. So it's, it's a little bit different than any other industry out there. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, I really, again, appreciate the feedback and intend to use it to my benefit um, in the future. So thank you. Very good. So where, where do you th- see things going from here? You mentioned things have gotten a little bit worse over the years. Um, how do we turn it around? Yeah, I, well, I hope it's really an intentional effort to focus on this idea of building community where people feel a sense of belonging, where they can thrive and just doing my part and trying to get the message out there. I had a lot of fun, honestly, with the stories in this book and the people and the organizations and other communities that I learned from. And so trying to get those, what I hope are inspiring examples out there. Uh, and kind of shine the the spotlight on them. Uh, and then I, I am starting a new large project uh, with um, Anson Dorrance, who is the women's coach at UNC, soccer coach, won 22 national championships, was uh, the U.S. women's national coach, you know, kind of the first one that, that really put them on the map. And I had the opportunity to spend the fall season with them. And so learned a lot and I'm kind of moving that forward. And then uh, working with Adrian Boise, who's now the chief medical officer at Qualtrics and is still with the Cleveland Clinic on potentially, you know, another kind of broad project related to our interests, which are, you know, along the lines of, of leadership, which uh, allows people to thrive and flourish and empathetic leadership. She's really focused on empathy had a wonderful, you know, global summit, um, still does at the Cleveland Clinic that they host on empathy and innovation. So, you know, that could be a potentially really large scale project. So uh, we'll see. But but those are two pieces that I'm focusing on, along with, you know, a lot of academic articles so I can keep my job that way. <laughs> so. No, it's great. And and I think one of the messages that comes across from your work is nice guys finish first. And by having these different examples, it really does make a nice statement. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's one of the um, part of the attraction of uh, this new project with Anson Dorrance is the idea. He really focuses on human growth in general and human development. And there are kind of like three pillars that we know from theory and science that he implements in his program. And I've seen from a lot of top coaches now, which is like the autonomy, which is people need to own it. You know, they're empowered to make decisions um, the piece around competence, which you touched on feedback, which I think is so important for, you know, growth and things like that. And then um, the idea of connection or community. And so I just uh, had a lot of fun kind of seeing how that works as far as how do you promote human growth or development um player growth or development, physician growth or development, like by creating a culture where those pieces are ripe. And so that's uh, kind of the next, um, like I said, probably big project for me, but it, I agree. I, I've had a lot of fun kind of digging into that. Well, very good. Well, we're coming up to our half hour mark. Do you have any closing, closing thoughts or reflections you'd like to share with the audience? 
I think just the idea that we really have a lot of power, uh, even if we don't feel like it, that, you know, you in our small moments, we have the ability to lift people up or hold them down. And um, whether it's, you know, acknowledging people, asking how you can help, paying attention, listening attentively, thanking people, things like these really change the trajectory of people's days. And we pass that on in our networks at work, in our networks at outside of work. And so, you know, just thinking about who do you want to be in those moments and uh, how much good you will do from the world for the world um, by lifting people up. Well, that's great. Well, Thank you so much. I feel lifted up from all of I've learned from you. And uh, thank you for being on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, that's our show for today. I want to thank Dr. Christine Porath for joining us today and for sharing both her insights and personal story. You can learn more about Christine on her website, www.christineporath.com. There you can also find information on how to contact her or to order any of her three books, Mastering Community, Mastering Civility, and The Cost of Bad Behavior. You can also follow her on Twitter at PorathC. That's at P-O-R-A-T-H-C. If you wish to learn more about the Coalition, please visit our website at www.forphysicianwellbeing.org. You can also check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. I also want to thank our volunteers and the staff from the Coalition who made this podcast possible. Finally, I'd like to thank ACESIS, A-C-E-S-I-S, Incorporated, for sponsoring my time working on this podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and his guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Coalition for Physician Wellbeing, its board, or other members of the Coalition. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Brown, wishing our caregivers out there meaning, purpose, and joy in the practice of medicine. Together we are stronger. Until next time.